Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. Alexander Hoare is a family member and on the board of directors of the Hoare Bank, United Kingdom's oldest privately owned bank founded in 1672 by Sir Richard Hoare. Alexander has been instrumental in building the ecosystem around impact investing and educating wealth holders around the opportunities and challenges. He will share his experiences. This is Radical Truth. I'm really honored today because we have Alexander Hoare, who was previously the CEO of the Hoare Bank, the oldest private bank in the UK. I had the honor of actually visiting uh, the place which seemed to be like going into a Harry Potter time machine. Um, and uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Alexander Hoare or the Hoare Bank, I'm going to let him give you some background. We first met about 10 or 15 years ago when he first came to a TBI conference and realized that he was not crazy to embrace sustainable investment. And from that time, every day or every year, moving the needle a little bit more and more, and now uh, being a, a strong supporter of impact investing. So, Alexander, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, do you, before I start, let me just check. How many of the audience are actual clients of the Horror Bank? If you are a client of the Horror Bank, please press on one of the clap emojis so we can see if anyone's there. So if no one's there, that's also fine. Maybe there's a potential for new clients for you. So a couple. All right, a couple of people. Oh, I think that I see another Horror in the audience there. So there are some people who are actually clients over here, and maybe you'll, you recognize them, or they would like to be clients. All right, Alexander, I leave it so, to you. Well, thank you. Good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and Happy New Year. Um, I'm going to talk about stewarding a uh, family business in the 11th generation and how that's led us to impact investing in a strange way. But first, I'd like to thank Robert um, for the opportunity of speaking today, yes, but also for many years of moral support. The first TBL I went to was probably 15 or more years ago in the Grange Hotel, St. Paul's in London. And it had a very avant-garde feel. It was full of three free thinkers, uh, no respectable bankers or asset managers. Um, and it was there I met Paul Blythe, who subsequently became a, a co-founder of Snowball. And I stayed in touch with TBLI and, and I've attended their conferences in Switzerland and in, in Singapore. And it's wonderful to see that their time seems finally have to have come and all sorts of serious investors are, are asking genuine questions now about sustainable investing. So thank you, uh, TBLI. And thank you, audience, for tuning in. 35 years ago, I was less self-assured. I was a uh, newly minted graduate with a business studies degree. I was very lucky to be in the first ever graduate intake of PA consulting. And I loved that work. And if I'm honest, I never actually wanted or expected to work in the family business. And I hesitated <coughs> over it. And I asked myself, would the business endure? Would the gap between our little bank and the big banks survive? Or would the big banks come and crush it? Now, the big banks were about a thousand times the size of us. And with 
size comes <clears throat> bigger deals, and with bigger deals come finer prices. And with size comes more opportunity to invest, more opportunity to hire. And if the economies of scale <clears throat> argument was the whole argument, we would have been crushed into a footnote of banking history a long time ago. But there are other forces, uh, other forces at play. The diseconomies of large-scale organizations, the inertia, the strange incentive schemes, the short-term-ism, the sometimes poor customer culture, and probably many others. And uh, what we know is we can't compete on size and scale or price, but we can compete when it comes to things like picking up the telephone, talking to customers as human beings. That's uh, another story. So in 1987, I joined the family business and I treated it as a series of consulting assignments to try and make it um, fit and relevant for contemporary purpose. An early um, action was to coin the partner's mission statement. The partner's mission statement is to perpetuate a profitable family business. <clears throat> Notice it says nothing about conquering or dominating any market. It says absolutely nothing about corporate social responsibility. But perpetuity is quite some aim, <clears throat> and it has implications. In fact, almost every week, management will be discussing some plan, and the partners will say, great plan, I can see how it will work for the next few years, but how will it work in the next few centuries? This discussion genuinely happens. And once I was on a course at Wharton, and some bright spark cornered me <coughs> with lots of other people, and he said, so your, your family's been doing this business for over 300 years, and you, and you don't own India, you haven't got half of China, what the hell have you been doing? And I thought for a second, I said, well, actually, what we've been doing is we've been quietly perpetuating a profitable family business. And the point is that uh, unlimited compound growth and, um, well, it, just, it doesn't compute really with, with perpetuity. Um, two decades later, we articulate a, articulated a purpose statement. Our purpose is to be good bankers and good citizens. Now, any time there are good banks and there are good citizens, but there are very few trying to be good bankers and good citizens. You know a good bank when you see it. A good bank has got happy customers and delivers decent financial returns. For, for the benefit of uh, the audience, I should say that our bank only serves private clients and their private businesses. And that means we don't finance any fossil fuel extraction and that sort of thing. But we do finance quite a lot of anaerobic digesters, solar farms, forestry, and that sort of thing. And the bank's done a good job of reducing and minimizing its own carbon emissions. I think it's down to 140 tonnes. Um, but the real action is in the uh, what's called the level three emissions. That is the emissions inherent in what we're financing. And we're still analysing that. And it's difficult. And you need to be a bit circumspect. One day I was talking to a customer who was a passionate petrol head. He was into car racing. And I challenged him on his carbon footprint. He said, hey, look, yeah, mate, I've got 30,000 trees. How many have you got? So I, I backed off. <clears throat> Two mantras which have really helped us over the years are small is beautiful and kiss, keep it simple, stupid. These mantras work for us because as a, a family, we want the, to keep the bank manageable both by ourselves and our successors. But what that really translates to is we want the bank to be sustainable. And these mantras 
work out in the daily quite small issues, but they, they also work in the big decisions. So five years ago, we decided to sell our wealth management business. Uh, and you could, there were definite, keep it simple and small, small as beautiful reasons to do that. And lots of big decisions, the decisions not to open up in any offshore tax centers, the decision not to offer complex insurance or derivative products, and so on and so forth. Now, after the great financial crisis, I met one of the government's banking commission, and he said to me, small banks are neither possible nor desirable. Well, I beg to differ. <clears throat> and I cite not only our own case, but also we're members of something called the Groupement Européen de Banque. Uh, this is a, an affiliation of independent banks from nine different countries of Europe. And every year we look at our numbers, and every year, individually and collectively, our numbers are as good as, or better than, an average large bank on most measures. But scale is a problem, and it's a constant stress. It's like walking on a tightrope, actually, because on the one hand, if you're too small, you're going to fail. And on the other hand, if you get too big, you're going to fail to perpetuate the family business. So you're on this tightrope, and, and <clears throat> wobbling is how you find the balance as you try and deal with the modern world. Um, another aspect of our good banking I think stems from our ownership. So we would say this, but we think ownership matters. Six cousins own 100% of the capital of the bank. And that sort of would sound like a nice ticket. However, remember it comes with joint and several unlimited liability for anything and everything that happens between our 400 staff with our 15,000 customers armed with a six billion pound balance sheet. And the unlimited liability serves to keep the partners honest and working hard. And when we're working hard, we're not pursuing growth. We're not trying to maximize profits on the whole. We're trying to get on top of the risks, trying to manage and mitigate risks. One role we do in that capacity is we meet and approve every prospective customer. So we only want pr prospective customers to join if they share our values. And, and by the way, they do join. They never speak of opening their accounts. They speak of when I joined. Another ownership point hit me in the FT over the Christmas period. I read that the American banks, big banks, in the last decade have paid fines of two, was it $2 billion. And I thought to myself, that's the sort of thing you do with other people's money. In our case, we're happy to pay our taxes. I'm pleased to say we haven't paid any fines. Um, earlier I mentioned answering the telephone. We've had telephones for 150 years. Not many banks are good at it. And in uh, March, at the first lockdown, it was very, very evident the benefits of a small, simple business, which was able to pivot. <clears throat> and some of the larger banks struggled for months to do fairly basic things like answer the telephone. Turning then from good bankers to good citizens, <clears throat> and remembering that good citizenship hangs on good banking, it begins with us. Uh, in a guide to all new colleagues to treat others as you'd wish to be treated. You will recognize this as the golden rule. I think it's important. I think it accounts for the good relations we enjoy <clears throat> with our community, with our customers and with our colleagues. And at a pretty sort of simple level, <clears throat> if you're going into work every day for 30 years, would you rather go into a place of good relationships or into a battle zone? Um, colleagues and customers seem to feel the same way because we enjoy much longer relationships than, than most banks. And I suspect that long relationships are, are good economics, but maybe it's too early to tell in the words of the Chinese leader. 
Um, I also suspect it's difficult to enjoy a good relationship with a bank if you're one of millions of customers, but I don't know and I'm not about to try. So probably the most obvious plank of our good citizenship to the outside world anyway would be our philanthropy. And we've got three centuries of good story to tell there. There are churches, schools, two hospitals and a hospice to show for it. In recent decades, <clears throat> we've had the habit of tithing. That is giving about 10% of our profits to our charitable trust, the Golden Model Trust. And as a result of that, we've gained some expertise in giving. That is selecting causes where we can be catalytic and sometimes systemic and assessing uh, the impact of our gifts. And giving is good, but there's only so much we can do of our giving. And then we realize, well, how about enlisting our staff and our customers? So with staff, we've got just under half to give as you earn through the monthly payroll. And we double match whatever they give. And through that, uh, we move about a third of a million pounds a year to the third sector. But much more importantly, what that does is it ingrains the habit of philanthropy in, in our colleagues. And once you've got the habit, uh, then giving is, is a joy. With customers, <clears throat> for customers, we uh, developed a donor-advised donor fund with the first bank in the UK to offer a donor-advised fund. And it has way exceeded our wildest dreams, really. Over 100 million pounds has recently moved through it into the charitable sector. Um, we are about a tenth of the UK market in donor-advised funds. And it's also had other benefits. It's, it's revealed itself to be a good way of bringing in <coughs> prospective customers. And it's been found to be a good vehicle for making social impact investments, which leads neatly on to social impact investing. The Golden Bottle Trust, <clears throat> over a year ago, went 100% allocated to impact investing. And I'm pleased to say in the last year or so that um, performance has been quite robust. Now, how did that happen? Well, it began in 2010 with a 10% allocation. A year or two later, it became a 20% allocation. In 2016, <clears throat> we decided there was strength in numbers, and we joined up with five other similar families and trusts. <clears throat> and this went along, and it emerged in November last year as um, a fully regulated impact fund, Snowball. Snowball is quite small, but it has big aspirations. Um, its aspiration is to list as an investment trust and thereby dem democratize impact investing. What do I mean by that? I mean to make available to the man and woman in the street a really good impact portfolio so that he or she can invest um, successfully in line with their values. Um, in line with their values. I've completely forgotten <laughs> what I was going to say. Um, so, so going back to Snowball, Snowball is a B corporation and it uh, invests targeting all 17 of the United Nations social development goals. It um, invests in all asset classes, cash, fixed interest, public equity, private equity, venture, uh, social impact bonds, whatever. It has a bias to the UK, but it can invest. It does invest globally. Um, it invests for intentional, measurable, additional social impact, but at the same time, <clears throat> aims to deliver uh, a good financial return. Um, and by that, we're aiming for inflation plus three or four percent. And I would argue that if you can get relatively uncorrelated returns of three or four percent, they belong in any portfolio. It's a good return to include. Now, I'm sure that any audience of TBLI is sophisticated. 
But I'm not um, at liberty to, to um, go into much detail on Snowball without first pre-qualifying you as sophisticated. Um, but if anyone wants to get in touch, please do. Um, you might ask, well, so there's this impact on Snowball, so what? What's, what problem are you trying to solve? And the problems are legion and deeply embedded, and it's not going to be easy. <clears throat> Our economies have been deeply influenced by economists, and economists assume that um, you can forget about externalities, which is literally rubbish. They assume that the human is a totally selfish being, doesn't care about community, which is manifestly wrong. And then you get the likes of Milton Friedman, who, who say that the only job of a company is to maximize profits. And we now know where that leads to outrageous greed. Um, and then you get the whole business of quarterly earnings, distorting company behaviors, incentive systems inside the companies, distorting directors' behaviors. And it's not a pretty picture, actually. The picture which is emerging is is one of a society serving capitalism or, or certainly financial markets and, and, and not the other way around. I had my own struggles with this when, when we had a wealth management department. I knew we had customers who would quite like some social impact investments in their portfolios, but I could not thread it through the regulatory thickets, despite what the regulators said. And if I had, I then came to realize that I still wouldn't get anywhere because you'd be up against the, uh, the portfolio managers, the financial advisors. And if you're a financial advisor and you're interested in your bonus at the year end, you're not going to take a risk in new asset classes, which may or may not underperform the crowd. Much safer just to stick with the crowd. So... Pretty much the day I got out of the wealth management business, I re-entered the fund management business in Snowball with a view to tackling some quite big issues. And we've taken Snowball around the private client um, investment houses of the city. And they listened politely and they agreed that many of their clients would like to invest in line with their values. And when they've shown you the door, they work out that why would they want to upset their status quo and their vested interests? Why would they um, rebuild their investment models to include a new asset class when it's much easier just to sort of quietly hope this whole thing goes away? Well, it's not going to go away. <laughs> um, Big Society Capital and Schroders last month listed an investment trust doing exactly the same as us. So it can be done. And there's a new generation of investors coming through who, who I think won't take kindly to the old ways of doing things. They will find ways to invest how they want to invest. And, and this comes on to what, what is our measure of success. Our measure of success is when all investments do take account of their impact. And when we get um, capitalism or, or, or the city serving society, and not the way around it is at present. Now, there's lots more I could say about, and happy to say about, stewarding a 349-year-old uh, business, um, but uh, I'm leaving lots of time for questions and answers. I should sort of mention that <clears throat> it's all quite easy with the benefit of hindsight, but on any given day, it's actually quite complicated, and, and you don't really know what the right answer is. But it does help to have some strong values, to have some tried and tested mantras. It really helps to have a partnership, a family partnership, <clears throat> to discuss things in the round, and a partnership with a wealth of experience, <clears throat> arguably going back three centuries. Um, about 30 years ago, I used to, well, up until about 30 years ago, I used to have to defend uh, a perceived continuing anachronism of a family, a small family bank. That doesn't happen so much now. And the worry I had 35 years ago, would, uh, would we be crushed? 
I, I don't worry about that. <clears throat> I know that if you empower staff to give great customer experiences, you can make enough money to give generously to charity, to make big IT and other investments, um, and to maintain capital, strong capital ratios, and basically survive and thrive. Famous last words. Um, I'll leave you with a, a sort of small paradox. Most private banks lead with trying to make their customers richer. And actually, what they're trying to do is maximize their short-term profits. We help our customers enjoy their wealth and often give it away. And with our unlimited liability and our perpetual time frame, we're never interested in maximizing short-term profits. And the funny thing is it turns out to be quite a profitable strategy. Um, so that's it from me. I'm, <clears throat> thank you for listening. Uh, I'm looking forward to some questions. Thank you, Alexander. Uh, before I open it up to, there are a couple of questions already, and actually I think one of the recipients of funding from Project Snowball gave you a shout out, uh, the Yield Lab in, in Ireland. Um, you met, you said to me years ago that um, you you filter and you said it again that you filter new clients that you want to see and that you say well we don't really like where that money is from or where what your organization represents is that still the case because most of the private bankers that I know are thrilled when anybody brings them any assets you're one of the first persons that says well I don't know if we really want to hang out with you? So I, I met uh, um, a, a, an experienced banker a while ago who, who explained it quite cogently. He said, um, suppose you take Russians. You know, the first nine might be perfectly reasonable to deal with, but the tenth might be somebody who negotiates at the end of a Kalashnikov. And you don't really want to put yourself in that position. So it's easier just to stick to the, the niche you know and the areas where you can Add, competently add value. So it's unfashionable, but we do discriminate somewhat. Um, you also, I think if I correctly remember, you said we have unlimited personal liability, which most corporations, they don't have. But then I said, well, yeah, but you've been around a long time. You probably have lots of banks who would love to buy your bank. And, and I think you, I don't know if I understood correctly. He said, yeah, but we can only sell at the price of very long time ago because of the bylaws. Is that still true? Y yes. So the, um, the unlimited liability serves to keep the price of the shares at par. So, so um, this is a family, family succession point. <clears throat> if, in the case of some Swiss banks, I know incoming partners have to borrow a ton of money to buy their shares. And then they have to have to do unsustainable things, really, to, to repay the money. <clears throat> we uh, bring in new partners cheaply and expect them to go cheaply. Okay. Um, I, we had a question from another multi-generation uh, entrepreneur, Stephen Brenningmeyer. He, want, he had a question... How does the bank move from one generation to the next? Um, we work very hard at this. Um, <clears throat> really, we, we're meant to be allocating about a quarter of our energies to it. So identifying candidates, getting to know them, bringing them along, getting them into the bank, th this is not something we leave to chance. Uh, and we throw science at it too. We use skilled external assessors. Assessors. Um, it's uh, and the short answer is it's hard work and, and has to be done. And if you don't do it, then then you're in a hell of a mess. You you, you I suppose you'd have to sell the business, which which would be a failure. In the three to four hundred years that the bank has been around, <coughs> I'm sure that you've gone through many difficult challenges, cycles, depressions, recessions, and things like that. 
what was the most, if you can, you know, uh, remember or, or think historically, what was the most challenging for the Horbank uh, that really went to the roots? Will we <coughs> get through this? So the bank has been through world wars and um, all sorts of traumas. <coughs> um, and, and not answering your question, I'm simply dreading negative interest rates coming because they're, they're not going to be easy. But it, answering your question, inflation and high taxes together in the 1970s were, were very bad news. What inflation does is it expands your balance sheet, <clears throat> but it doesn't uh, expand your your retained earnings. So they're constant. So you're under continuous pressure to to rebuild your your capital ratios in inflation. Jacob had a question. Well, it's more, I think it's more of a statement. How would the economy uh, be different if we manage not for the next quarter, but for the next century? Um, <clears throat> let's try. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. <clears throat> Well, I do know, actually. I mean, one thing I do know is a lot of family businesses have surprised over the last 20 years. So 30 years ago, it was a bit infradig and slightly second best to be a family business. That's not the case now. A lot of family businesses have shown that looking after their community and their workforces and and doing what they do really well. The Mittelstand in Germany, you know, is, is a very, very valid strategy. and and so <clears throat> I suspect the world would be a lot better, but we need to see it. Um, the, why is it called Project Snowball? I think Warren Buffett talked about snowballing at some point. Uh, I, don't, I don't exactly know. Ask James Perry. Okay, <laughs> I'll do that. Uh, Mark had a question. Hello, Alexander. Very interested to hear about your investments in green technology and forestry. May I ask if this is from the bank's own balance sheet or client's money? So there I was talking about what the bank finances. So the bank doesn't do much proprietary investing, um, but it does lend to people who, who uh, build solar farms or wind turbines or do whatever they do. Okay. Are you, because um, I know there were some compliance issues about speaking a bit about Project Snowball, there's a few questions here. So if it's a problem, I understand what is the total investment of the Snowball project? What is the investment criteria and potential returns to the investors? And what's the mechanism of the impact investment deployment? So the total is about 15 million pounds, six partners at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, what's the second question? <laughs> Um, what's the investment criteria and returns um, to investment so promise returns? In its latest form, uh, as a regulated fund, um, the minimum investment is £120,000. Mm -hmm. um, the returns I mentioned, financial returns, were aiming for inflation plus 3 or 4%. The final question was a bit difficult, was how do we actually do it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. What is the mechanism for the impact investment uh, deployment? Um, oh, I see. So <clears throat> that's why we have public equities. When cash comes in, we can deploy it in public markets. And then as and when um, private funds uh, open or or in fundraising mode, we can deploy that capital in private funds. Many of the uh, investments are like seven-year private equity type structures. Okay. Um, Joseph wanted to know, how is the emotive portion of Snowball's value proposition structurally changed the reporting burden and type of transparency or metrics to meet the uh, the softer expectations of your clients. So, a traditional wealth manager would report in terms of <coughs> risk and return, financial return. We report in terms of financial return and impact. We adhere to the impact management 
Um, I can't remember what they're called. Intech Management Report uh, Group. There's a, there's a body. There's a body which tells you how to do it. We adhere to that. We have a, a thing called a we, – we use a bullseye. <clears throat> so if it hits top score, it's in the middle of the bullseye and, and not – in fact, very few investments hit that. They're scattered around the, the bullseye. <clears throat> That's how we visualize them. Emotions are a bit difficult. Um, I, you know, each person's emotions are different, so they have to be done personally. <clears throat> Ricardo wanted to know, um, hi, Alexander, thanks for sharing. Does your bank has any or have any investment in forest regeneration and or environment, environment, uh, environmental services? Ricardo is from Brazil. What was the last bit? Environmental surfaces. Service, services. Services. So, the, as I said, the bank doesn't have many investments at all. It's got four, I think, and they're all funds. Um, what the bank does is is it um, it will lend to people making investments, uh, and they can be for all manner of things. And then there's the Golden Bottle Trust, and that is invested with three main managers doing fairly mainstream things, mainly quoted instruments. So short answer is not really. Um, I, we are being overwhelmed with questions, so I, I apologize if we're not going to be able to get to all of them, um, so we will try our best. So. Um, Ayata wanted to know, Alexander, uh, if you were in charge of the FCA, PRA, what would your current priority for the UK be for 2021? I don't understand the question. Okay, if you were in charge of the FCA, I guess that's a regulatory body, or the PRA, I'm not sure what that is, what would your current priority for the UK for 2021 be? <laughs> I, personally, I would like to see them do less, and, but do what they do better. I, there's a feeling, I have a feeling they're doing loads and loads and loads of things and not actually doing any of them very well. Um, and I know that we send them millions and millions of lines of data quarterly. I have no idea what they can possibly derive from this data. <clears throat> Moore, I have a question. Uh, refreshing to see a principle-based approach in all aspects of business. Also great to see an old bank that is not old-fashioned. Do you think impact investing could become mainstream with almost equal consideration of financial as well as social returns? Yes, I do. I think that in a fairly short space of time, all uh, investments will in include some consideration of, of their impact. I think the, the pendulum is swinging that way fast, um, and, and then we'll have been successful when we get there. Uh, Simon wanted to know a great example of sustainable banking. How do you educate yourself and keep staff up to date with impact investing developments? So if you go back to sort of 2010 when we started, I educated myself by making a few investments and learning at the shop end. Um, and, and then equally, 2016, when we joined up with five other partners, I realized that this was a full-time job for professionals. It wasn't really something to do, <clears throat> do on the side. Um, I guess we educate ourselves and our staff the same way as any organization does. You do formal and informal training. You have a certain amount of circulation of new staff. Uh, it's an old problem, I think. Um, Stephen had, had another question. Uh, dear Alex, are only whore family members able to become partners? Uh, yes. Okay. All right, so all the, you have to hold back your checks over there. Uh, Ricardo wanted to know, what's your opinion about the the Suave 
and the multiplicity of digital coins and its impact in the traditional banking system to cryptocurrency. Yeah. So I think um, I think blockchain might well have um, applications in banks. When I did look quite hard at Bitcoin, it struck me that the whole point of Bitcoin was not to need banks. Absolutely, the whole fundamental point is to avoid the need for the banking system. And so it didn't seem to me appropriate, really, for a bank to to participate in that. Okay. I also thought that I should know a bit about this. So I went off one day and got myself, I wanted to buy some Bitcoin. <laughs> but first, you have to have a Bitcoin wallet. So I went and got myself a Bitcoin wallet from some people called Mount Gox, I think. And that weekend, it went bust. <laughs> so I stopped there. Okay. All right. Um, you can always contact Sam. I assume he's become an expert on cryptocurrency. Uh, Alessandro had a question. Alexander, it seems that you are promoting impact at various levels, personally through your values, through the Hoare Bank, through the Snowball Funds and Philanthropic Giving. What do you see as being the commonalities and differences across these areas in order to promote a systemic change in our capitalistic model? The commonality, I think, would be walking in accordance with, with our values in, in, in all the different areas. Is that the question? Yeah. Uh, Julia, do you as a bank and impact fund develop some female-centric offers and strategy to address growing number of wealthy female clients or think that investment is a gender-neutral engagement uh, endeavor? So, um, for a long time in our generation, we were three blokes and three ladies. And uh, <clears throat> and we're, we're going to keep it that way. And and I think it doesn't really appeal to me to discriminate on gender grounds. However, um, the next generation will do what they do. <laughs> Laura wanted to know, do you find it... Um, it is a certain demographic of client who is interested in impact investing. Uh, is it your younger clients, the next gen, the next gen, or do you have older clients who find it also important? So we haven't shown it to our whole customer base yet. That's taking place this month. Oh, okay. We did show it to a couple of hundred in a in a Zoom thing, a bit like this <clears throat> a month ago. And of that couple of hundred, a sixth came <clears throat> came forward later with serious interest. And most of them were very senior, successful people. They weren't they weren't sort of spots. <laughs> do you do you find it difficult um, educating or convincing clients about an impact strategy? Do they all have to be at a certain level? of awareness or there a universal uh, acceptance or cynicism about it? So I think everyone's on a journey there and, and different people in different places. There are a lot of people who think, you know, it's great to carry on trashing the environment and giving away the income. And there are people who have moved a long way from there. Uh, what you can't generalize is where any particular person is on that sort of spectrum, actually, on that journey. Mick wanted to know, being a family-owned bank, what is your approach to risk management and how is your relationship with the regulator managed? I guess like any other bank, I would think. Yes, with regard to the regulator, they don't they don't really they don't cut any slack for us at all. <laughs> Manage us like any other bank. Which I would argue is, is a bit unfair actually, because um we are different <clears throat> with unlimited liability. What's our approach to risk management? It's working hard. You know, but from the moment we get up, the moment we get asleep, we're kind of worried about our risks. <laughs> John wanted to know, does Horbank use any, I don't know, MMII, I think that is, metrics to measure its performance or MIL? I can't really see that. I don't know what that is, MIL. 
I think the answer is no. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I think this is a pitch over here. Uh, Deidre wanted to know, have your family invested in wool historically? And would you care to again? In wool? Wool, yes. It's a very good question. Um, certainly we had customers um, in Devon and in Norfolk who were big in wool in the 18th century. Um, I, I don't know about the bank. <laughs> um, okay, Hannah wanted to what extent does your private ownership provide the flexibility to take a longer-term view and the unlimited liability, a guiding rigor? Both opportunity and pressure that are similar to the investee com companies, founders themselves, perhaps bring a certain empathy. This particular unique situation where you're family-owned and very multi-generational. So I think the long-term horizon is is really important. Um, it, it it enables us to invest. In, in a way that is not rational in the sort of contemporary malls. So I'll give you an example. Most banks are wrestling with the most terrible uh, legacy systems, mainframe computers from the 1970s. We took a decision in the 1980s to bite the bullet and just get rid of them. <clears throat> but we could do that because we, we were thinking about our own, we we're thinking about 20 years ahead. It'd be obvious you should do it. But if you're chief executive of a three-year time horizon, it's quite obvious that you shouldn't do it. <clears throat> okay, Joan wanted to know, what is your strategy for investing in developing economies? Do you do that? And how do you find diligence and invest in opportunities there? So I like uh, investing in uh, away from the mainstream. So this is me personally, I suppose. Uh, you know, I've got a ton of mainstream risk in, 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 in a bank in the city of London. In my own investments, I look for, for risks which are completely different. And, uh, and that does take me to investments in Africa and the Middle East and all sorts of places. Um, does the bank do it? The bank doesn't do much investing, so no. Okay. Susanna, I have a, thank you so much, Alexander and Robert, for a thoughtful discussion. question is, in order to plan for 100 years out, which you've gone through several cycles of that, how do you go about building a picture of life, business, and banking that far into the future? Are there any central themes of change in banking that you're particularly alert to? Thanks also for the shout-out to Schroeder, to BNC Social Impact Fund. All right. Okay. Um. So we, we've got quite a big museum and a large archive, and we nurture it. And it tells you various things. It tells you that the one constant is change. And the technology of banking um, <clears throat> has continuously changed and, 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 and is changing increasingly fast. But it also tells you that the fundamental needs don't change much. People are people. and, and you know, they feed their families and they grow up and die. And the, the, the basics <clears throat> haven't changed in many thousands of years, I don't think. Um, Ian, Tim, sorry, Tim wanted to know, do you consider Snowball as a manager for Golden Bottle Trust? It is a manager, yes. One of three. Okay. Uh, Suda, does the fund itself operate as a fund of fund in that it is a sophisticated investor or qualified purchaser, meaning it can invest in private funds that have the higher investor eligibility criteria? It, it is a fund of funds. Um, we've got a small team at the moment, and uh, the easiest way of getting the coverage is to invest through funds. <laughs> Um, Emmanuel wants to know, um, many, th there are many thanks for sharing your experience and views. Does Horbank plan a physical geographic expansion given Brexit? So we uh, style ourselves as a UK bank for UK people. Um, I think the kind of two generic strategies, one would be Citibank as anytime, anywhere, and ours is just to be the best in the UK. 
and we cooperate with other banks all over the world as necessary. The last thing we want to do is enter into competition with banks in other territories. So we're, we're staying in the UK. And, you know, in the 1970s, you did need a mainframe computer and branches. But now, <clears throat> you know, we've got Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> John wanted to know, how is the pandemic influenced Snowball's and the and or the bank's priorities? So in the case of Snowball, I think it will turn out, the pandemic will turn out to have been helpful. I mean, it's obviously not helpful at the moment, but what it is doing is making people much more aware of their impact socially. And, um, you know, it, it comes out in Black Lives Matter and things, but it also comes out in in discussions of uh, of impact investing. So I think I think the market will have expanded at the end of it all. Okay. Kamesh wanted to know, when do you think impact investing had any impact on your bank, positive or negative? Has it had any influence, positive or negative? Well, I treat the bank as, an, as a positive <clears throat> impact investment. So one reason to keep turning up to work every day for 33 years is to keep the, the, the bank <clears throat> doing the great stuff it does and, and doing more of it so we can give more to charity each year and have more impact there too. It's it's very, very impactful employing people, looking after 15,000 customers and doing all we do in philanthropy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I had a, I wanted to ask something. In the Ruth, no, sorry, the Rife lectures, I think Mark Carney referred to TCFD as the gold standard in measuring sustainability impact and net zero carbon aspirations. Does Seahor and Co. agree, or do they have their, their own system? Well, funny enough, Mark Carney is coming to address our board next week. Yeah. Next Thursday, actually. This time next this week, so I'll know more. Um, but I'm a little bit skeptical of net zero. If... If, in fact, you just sort of ship off all your production to China and you say, aren't we great? That doesn't yeah. really achieve much. So I think the devil's in the detail. It's in how the detail of how you do what you do, which will show up. Uh, just for uh, clarity, Mark Carney is now vice chairman of uh, Brookfield Asset Management. He's no longer a central banker, which is often a bit easier to get him to come to banks to make a speech. Um, Julia wanted to know, what is Horbank's view about dig digitalization and mobile banking? Is there space for digitalization for such a traditional, traditionally run bank? What are your plans in this area, if you can share? So the answer is yes, definitely. Um, I mentioned my background was PA consulting. I was actually in PA computers and telecommunications. And for the first 15 years of my career, I said to the bank, do not go onto the internet. Just don't, don't go there. But then we did. We created our first online banking. And uh, we did it for kind of defensive reasons. It was so that we stopped not winning business, if that makes sense. And we were a bit surprised that in no time at all, 90% of transactions were going straight through from, from the client. <clears throat> so we have a full online banking and full mobile app. Um, capability and we depend on it completely if if if, if it breaks you know, I don't know what we'll do um, but banking is transaction yes but you also need a relationship so not every day but from time to time you move house change jobs get divorced or something and then you need someone you can talk to as well as do transactions okay. um, the number of questions is is quite overwhelming. I just wanted to let you know. So if you need to end it, because I told you it would be an hour, I didn't expect this number of questions, but I can also send you the whole list. So if you need to end this, you know, just let, give me a shout out. No, we're here. Let's, let's keep, let's do it. Okay. Have you seen an increase in interest around diversity as a new factor that is important to the next generation of clients, similar to the rise in interest around impact? I've definitely seen an increased interest in diversity, but primarily in colleagues. So we have 
we have various working groups, <clears throat> and one is on climate and stuff, and another is on uh, diversity and inequalities, and and it's very serious work they're doing. <clears throat> Uh, let's see, uh, Quinton, you know about our commonality on views on this, delighted that our best performing model portfolios for last year were our ESG ones. Inevitably, this will lead us to impact investment. How best to lead our clients to snowball? I think that had better be done privately. Okay. All right. Uh, Joan, Alexander, you may recall that your bank hosted a microfinance event for our customers back in 2009 as you were host, uh, honing your impact investment strategy. I had the honor of being your microfinance event partner. Thank you for your continuing. Our firm investments can be reached. Okay, this is a pitch. Sorry about that. Uh, Murtha, do you think impact investing will be the end of charity as per James Perry's 2011 paper? Is it the best of capitalist and socialist ideas? No, I think uh, Jesus said the poor will always be with you. There will always be a scope for charity. Diana, I wanted to know, investors are supposed to be rational impact investment channels, capital into activities which give some assurance to a future life on earth that is sustainable, equitable, and inclusive. The reality seems still to be passing most asset owners buy, what do you think can be done and what do you do to proactively advocate for broad-based change, <coughs> excuse me, in investor behavior? So what we've done is put our money where our mouth is and developed a four-year track record doing it and created a product where which in, shortly anybody in the world will be able to invest in. And, and the point of doing that is to be catalytic, to if we start eating the lunch of the the, the old city, then, then they'll have to convert to, 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 to a new, newer form of business. Uh, does, uh, does Snowball invest in Africa? Yes. Okay. Uh, does it do private equity in Africa? Um, we got a fund which ran out of Paris called Investissement et Partner. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a private equity fund, and it's okay. in the west, primarily the west coast of Africa. What systemic risk do you see in the system? How can they affect your bank, your family, your customers? What measures do you think are necessary to reduce this? That's four questions. One: What role does tax play in this? So let's focus on one of the questions. Uh, what systemic risk do you see in the system that would affect your bank? There are two systemic risks. Uh, one we've touched on is, is regulators <clears throat> doing too much. And one of the implications of that is they herd the banks to doing everything the same. So you lose diversity, you lose resilience. The other risk which bothers me is the behavior of central banks. So when I look at my own savings and pension plans, I'm delighted that they've bailed them out. But you do wonder what will happen when the, when the ship comes home, so to speak. Uh, Alex wanted to know, the current financial system looks like it might have run its course. You might disagree if true. What impact do you think major changes to the system might have? And will this conform to the better world we all seem to aspire via impact and ESG investing? So all sorts of things could go wrong, but I'm optimistic. Uh, I'm very optimistic <clears throat> about lots of things. We live in the most extraordinary time of technological progress. Um, you know, we're on the cusp of free renewable energy and unlimited quantum computing and so on and so forth. I can't tell you how things are going to change, and I can tell you they may get worse before they get better, but I think we'll have a better world in the future. Okay. Uh, thoughts on the insanity of the U.S. for the moment or how to move forward, accepting the fact that the large banks have poor internal controls over use of Excel in their fiefdom schemes. Uh, how do we emer emerge to a better place? With hope, optimism, perseverance, 
I don't know. <laughs> Dominique wants to know: Have you made any uh, have you made any ideas regarding into in investing into ed tech, the future of world, future ed technology programs in terms of impact investing with sustainable yields? So I have customers who are very active in that field. And there's ed tech, there's fintech, there's agri-tech, there's all sorts of techs. And they're all really, really interesting. This is why I'm optimistic. I think we're on the cusp of amazing times. Uh, Fiona Wadner, do you support practical local knowledge and innovation that give hope to young young people? This can identify future jobs and local heroes to make global impact. Oh, yes and no. We fund a scholarship at the LICC London London University of Banking. We take people on internships. <clears throat> we take uh, through a charity, we take refugees, actually. We take lots of young people into the bank and give them work experience. That's part of part of the answer. Mm -hmm. uh, Rob wanted to know, how does Alexander balance innovation and risk-taking in terms of banking operation? Do you have an internal formal program to cultivate innovation as part of staying in business, or is it a sidecar speciality for Mavericks only? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to know what the right answer is. Um, the problem with being a bank is that the penalty for error is quite high. So there has to be quite a lot of control. And that can, does frustrate innovators. And yet we know that we need to innovate. <clears throat> and so you, you end up sort of with a yin and yang, trying to encourage innovation, accepting you will make errors and they will make losses and, and you'll learn. But managing such that you don't make a catastrophic loss, um, it's it's not an easy one. Okay. Uh, we're coming to the remaining questions. Michael, do you have any uh, – Michael wants to ask you, Alexander. Do you have an, an internal impact analyst resource or do you rely on external data providers for measurement? How do you measure the impact in both liquid and illiquid assets? So in Snowball, we, 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 we do this ourselves. <clears throat> um, it's incredibly work intensive. And um, <clears throat> if you wanted to get in touch with Snowball, we could share more with you. Okay. Uh, Alex wanted to know, how do you approach emerging markets, let's say China and India, for example, that need to get their approach to impact on the ESG investment structurally right, given the size of their economies and their growth trajectories for all our sakes? I, I don't approach China and India in quite the same breath. <laughs> we have customers, we have contacts who are very expert in India. Um, you can you can find out about India. Um, China, I don't know the answer to at all. I don't know if you should do it. <clears throat> Arthur wanted to know, given we need to mobilize around 10% of global capital market flows to have any chance of uh, reaching the SDGs, how would you see the technology to, uh, to which you referred changing the framing of impact investment and charity, which will mathematically fail, according to Arthur here? So what we know is that philanthropic money can't... <clears throat> can't deliver anything near what's needed for the, to meet the SDGs. And we know that government money isn't going to, government money doesn't exist, it's taxpayer money. So if we're going to find the money to hit these SDGs, it's got to come from the mainstream investment industry. And, and they're not going to do it until the, till the path is proven. So mm. what the impact investment pioneers are trying to do is prove the part, prove that there are um, realistic ways of investing for impact. And, and I think it's proven. Um, Alexander, what can this audience that is listening live or will see the program on a TV station in the Netherlands or will see the recorded uh, webinar, what can they do to help you? Ask the 
uh, investment managers of their pensions or their of their savings uh, if uh, to to invest their money for social impact just keep asking you might not get there but keep asking thank you to our guest and audience for joining us today if you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more please subscribe where you listen to your podcast this was radical truth stay safe stay safe